we are going to spend the next three weeks together talking about perseverance in different areas of our life. And fittingly, this morning, we're going to start talking about perseverance in marriage. The Bible uses the word perseverance repeatedly, and it is a core warning to the church throughout the New Testament. In fact, in 2 John, we see the exhortation to persevere lest we lose our reward. And so we know that perseverance is important. We're going to begin today by reading in Ephesians 5. So if you brought your Bible and want to open there, please do. We're going to start in Ephesians 5.22. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he begins, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5 is likely the most important passage in the entire Bible on marriage. Not because of the practical exhortation of how to love and honor a spouse, but rather because it definitively reveals to us the primary purpose of marriage. To portray the permanent, persevering, profound love Christ has for his bride, the church. So in keeping with that truth, we're not going to outline practical ways to improve our marriages this morning. Rather, we're going to look closely and we're going to be reminded about why God has given us marriage and what we're called to do with it. The great reformer John Calvin in his commentary on Ephesians 5 makes this statement. He says, whoever considers seriously the design of marriage cannot but love his wife. And if he is right, then we're going to make good use of time today by considering the design of marriage. It may seem obvious what marriage is or is supposed to be, but the reality is that many of us, even many Bible literate Christians, are living as though they misunderstand the purpose. If you go to a coffee shop and you see someone using an iPad as a coaster for their coffee, sure, it's technically true that they're using an iPad, but we would all agree that they're not yet experiencing its full potential. It's designed for more. And so it is with marriage. Just because you have one doesn't mean you know what it's for or how to use it. Now, I'm not going to stand here and pretend to be an expert on marriage. I couldn't do that with a straight face with my wife in the room. But what I do know is that the Bible speaks clearly about the importance of persevering in marriage. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You may have at some point heard the quip by the 18th century poet Alexander Pope who said, they dream in courtship, but in wedlock, wake. And I can't imagine anyone in history was more excited to get married than I was. Most of you don't know uh, me or my wife, uh, but I'll just tell you that 
Statistically speaking, the reality of me marrying my wife would be like winning the Powerball 10 times in a row. It's just incredibly unlikely. And I, I remember our wedding day felt like the culmination of all the dreams and longings I had ever had. And marriage is a kind of reverie like that, but it's also reality. And I remember waking up to reality the first week after our honeymoon when my wife was sitting on the bed crying and I was sitting nearby holding my, my head in my hands and just panicking in my heart and saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I have what it takes to love her the way that she ought to be loved. Now I'll pass along a little tip, just a less, little lesson I learned. If you're newly married and someone gives you a book called How to Change Your Spouse, don't display that in view of your spouse. Apparently that title is slightly unsettling for a young bride. But these are, these are the things we learn as we go. <clears throat> I likewise remember being completely shocked and utterly disoriented, and it's still difficult for me to talk about, but I'm going to be vulnerable with you, when I learned that she loaded the toilet paper in an underfeed orientation. And I remember thinking, how am I going to live with this woman who so defies the very laws of physics? And you over folks know what I'm talking about. And just to disabuse you poor souls who favor the underorientation, here's a picture from 1892 of the patent for toilet paper showing you <laughs> how it's designed to go. So just to settle any arguments that are brewing up here this morning. Now that same day, she didn't tell me so, but I presume that my wife probably found herself thinking, how am I going to make it with a man so neurotic as to care about the minutia of life, like how to hang toilet paper? But in marriage, we awaken to both the realities of its glory and its difficulty. Now I'm sensitive this morning to the fact that some of you have come in here and you hear that we are having a sermon on marriage and you grimace. I know that there are really just three types of listeners this morning, and I want you to know that wherever you are, I've been praying for all of us for the last many weeks leading up to this morning. If you've never been married, I've been praying that this morning that you would behold a vision for marriage that goes beyond cultural cliches and enables you to either aspire to godly marriage yourself, or if yours is the gift and calling of singleness, to help equip you to pray for and encourage married couples throughout your life. If you're married this morning, I've been praying that we would embrace a vision of marriage that will help lift us above the clouds of routine and habit and empower us to pursue spiritual depth in our soul and more Christ-exalting joy in our marriages. And for those of you who are separated from spouses by death or divorce, I've been praying that this morning that you would understand anew the grace of God that envelops all broken things and gain a vision for the truer and better marriage that all earthly marriage points to, the union between Christ and his church, a marriage that will never falter and that will persevere forever. So God, would you give that to us this morning? The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis 2, 24, where we see the initial call to persevere, the verb there to cleave or hold fast to or be joined with. And then it, it ends in a wedding in Revelation 19 through 21. So we see that Marriage stands as a central image throughout the entire Bible and from cover to cover describes the relationship between God and his people. And we're going to look this morning at three reasons that we should give ourselves fully to persevering in marriage. And the first is that marriage is a great design. Marriage is a great design. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 20, in the creation account, it says, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, ah, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That last part you heard quoted by Paul in Ephesians 5. What we learn from this passage is that marriage is both God's design and God's doing. It is the best way to live in romantic relationship. So much like the iPad I mentioned earlier, you can use marriage however you want. And there are a lot of ideas in our culture about what romance should look like and how marriage should be treated and what, it, what place it should have in society. But if we're to believe the scriptures, we have to come to the realization that we are going to experience the greatest joy and the deepest benefit if we accord marriage its proper place as God's design and God's doing. And we also see that it's where our strongest legacy will be forged. Recall that the choices that Adam and Eve made in their marriage had ripple effects throughout the remainder of history. And in fact, all of us are experiencing those effects even this morning. Listen to the way that Evelyn James Whitehead say it. They say, in our marriage, we tell the next generation what sex and fidelity and marriage look like to Christians. We are prophets for better and for worse of the future of Christian marriage. So all that you see around you today, both the laudable and the lamentable, are a result to some degree of the choices of past generations. So the choices that we make in our marriages will matter not only in the immediate, but will have ripple effects for generations to come. So we can either model compliance with God's design, or we can capitulate to our sinful, unfaithful nature and to the encouragement of our culture that says, above all else, just be happy. So the most foundational reason then to persevere in marriage is that it is a great design. But even more fundamental, perhaps, is that it is a glorious demonstration. Marriage is a glorious demonstration. Look back at Ephesians 5, 32. Paul says, in referencing all that he said from verse 22 on about husbands should love their wives and lay down their lives for their wives and sacrifice for their wives, how their wives should honor and respect, submit to their husbands, what he quoted in Genesis 2 in the creation account, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the passage shows us that marriage is a living metaphor. It is a dramatization of the very gospel. In Romans 1, verse 18 through 20, Paul says that creation itself makes, makes evident God's eternal power and divine nature such that unbelieving men and women in the world are without excuse. Just so, the very institution of marriage depicts the covenant-keeping love of Christ for his people. So the sun and the stars, whether they realize it or not or like it or not, are actually manifesting God's brilliance and power in the world. And every married person, whether or not they believe in God or like the idea, manifests God's unyielding faithfulness. 
So we who are married, perhaps the greatest and most profound evangelistic opportunity we'll have in our entire life will be to persevere in our marriage in a gospel-informed, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, spirit-empowered way that depicts the truth of Christ's never-ending, holy, faithful, utterly devoted love for his church. Listen, the tenacity and tenure of your marriage may be the greatest apologetic of your entire life. But that means the converse is also true. Failing to persevere in marriage misrepresents the picture of Christ's faithfulness. It says something untrue about the gospel. I just read this week about a celebrity, very recognizable, who'd been married about a year and now he's getting divorced. And this is so typical and expected because Hollywood and our culture suggest that if in your marriage it doesn't feel right anymore, if the spark is no longer there, if you've fallen in love with somebody else, then you gotta pull the plug. It's the only fair thing to do. It's the only honest thing to do. Consider what Mark Twain said with some old-time wisdom that runs contrary to this. He observed that love seems the swiftest, but it is actually the slowest of all growths. No man or woman really knows what perfect love is until they've been married a quarter of a century. Very different than the idea we see modernly. In fact, just this last week, I read a very articulate piece by an Ivy League-educated woman who... and in some sense, stands as a paragon of feminist achievement in our world. Here's what she said about her marriage. My husband didn't make me happy, so we divorced. He didn't make me feel loved, appreciated, or valued. I complained that he was always working late, and when he wasn't working, he was asleep. I complained that he didn't wash the dishes. He left his clothes on the floor, and he never made the bed. I thought my husband was the source of my unhappiness, and just maybe, if we got divorced, I could be happy again. Simply put... I blamed him for my unhappiness. So after two short years of marriage, we separated. Yes, we still loved each other, and no, nothing catastrophic happened. No infidelity, no gambling, and no abuse. It was simple. We just weren't happy. That confession demonstrates a deeply flawed understanding of marriage. When we fail to persevere in our marriages and the covenants that we've made, it misconstrues the purpose and it misrepresents the picture of marriage. God did not institute marriage primarily for our happiness. If you took your vows with that understanding, you have surely endured seasons of great disappointment. Listen to the way that John Piper says it in his book, This Momentary Marriage. He says, marriage is not mainly about being or staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way that he relates to his people. It is about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. Just this last week, I was in court representing some friends from our church here who were adopting two adult children who several years ago when their parents passed away, this couple took them into their home and now they're adopting them. Their marriage was representing something true about Jesus and the way he relates to his people, giving those a family who don't have family. And as I stood there, I recognized they are showing me the gospel and what they're doing. Consider PJ Spraggins from Alabama, whose wife Tracy needed kidney transplant to save her life as she battled lupus. PJ went in for a blood test and learned that he was a perfect donor match and fully eligible, but he was overweight. He had to lose 70 pounds before he could actually go through the procedure. But this was his wife. 
And so he gave himself diligently. He subjugated his own body through rigorous diet and exercise until he could give his very own kidney to his wife and save her life. That is a picture of the gospel. And I don't know if PJ or Tracy know Jesus or follow him, but it doesn't actually matter because God says that marriage itself demonstrates the gospel. They have reminded us of Jesus' love for his people. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Christian, if, if this guy can give his kidney to his wife, surely you can yield and let your wife load the toilet paper the way that she likes. I just say, let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet. We are not yet at the application portion of this sermon. <laughs> the glorious demonstration of marriage involves a sincere element of duty. And we can't miss this. Ephesians 5.28, husbands ought to love their wives. Ephesians 5.33, wives must respect their husbands. These words, ought and must, are words of obligation. So inflexible and unappealing to our modern ears. I think to some degree that's true because we've all been influenced by the 19th century literary romantics. You may remember reading about them in high school or reading their poetry. They put forth a vision of love that was captained solely by strength of emotion. So that the English novelist and poet D.H. Lawrence once wrote, I will have nothing to do with should and ought, as though somehow duty undermined love and romance. And the vestiges of that worldview permeate our culture today and still impact the way that we think. We see it in all of our movies. Now, in contrast, Abraham Lincoln, a contemporary of Lawrence, in 1836, he promised to marry a woman who he had been acquainted with in years past, but hadn't seen her in three years. So he promises to marry her. He comes to see her, meet her face to face. And, uh, and here's what he observed in his journal about the meeting. She did not look as my imagination had pictured her. I could not for my life avoid thinking of my mother due to her lack of teeth. <laughs> Nothing could have commenced at the size of infancy and reached her present bulk in less than 35 or 40 years. And so he sees his betrothed and his observation is she's toothless, husky, and aging. And modernly, that would be absurd that he would continue with his vow. And yet, because he understood the idea of promise, principle, duty, he did propose to her, despite the unflattering description. Now, as fortune would have it, she apparently was not impressed with him either. She declined his proposal. And so he went on to meet his actual wife. Unquestionably, the perseverance of Christian marriage is governed by an unbending ought. God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. The scriptures do allow by grace some exceptions, including at least adultery and abandonment. But the general intention and instruction of marriage is that it persevere until death do us part. Now, I want to make a quick side note here. One case, I want to be very careful about this. One case not to persevere with your presence is if you're experiencing physical abuse. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to leave immediately, to go to a safe place to get help, alert the police, family, friends, church leadership. Do not stay. If that's happening, if you are here this morning and you are an abuser, I want to say unequivocally to you, on behalf of our entire church community and the God of all creation, that what you're doing, if it be verbal abuse, emotional abuse, or physical abuse, is utterly unacceptable, and you must stop. If you're here this morning and you're experiencing abuse, I want to encourage you, if you can, safely, to tell someone before you leave this morning so that we might help support you. Okay. 
That said, just because our promise is held under the weight of duty doesn't mean it should be in any meaningful sense held separate from delight. Where our oughts and our wants coincide, we find joy. And you can relate to this because you were once a child who didn't like vegetables. Or maybe like me, you have kids who don't like vegetables. And yet every day we make our children try vegetables because we know that they're good for them. Now one day they're going to learn to like Brussels sprouts. One day they're going to like spinach. Right? They're going to grow up and they're going to develop a taste. And when they do, the whole menu will open up to them. The whole world will change for them because their duty has become their delight. Their oughts and their wants become one. And that is where we find deep satisfaction. I want to pause again and I want to say a word to those of you who are in a season of dryness and distance in your marriage where it feels like all duty and no delight. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, describes life in community as the roses and lilies of the Christian life. And that may be where some of you are today. And if so, thank God for that. That is a gift. But I know that others of you are not there. For you, perhaps the roses and lilies feel like they are a thousand miles away. It is easy to be married when it's all roses and lilies. Everybody enjoys their honeymoon. But where the gospel is most clearly manifest through our marriage are those seasons when the covenant stands firm and only Christ can sustain it. So the encouragement to you today is hang in there. Persevere. Don't give up. God is honored by your commitment. Christ is exalted by your faithfulness. The Spirit is with you in your struggle. Do what you must to invest in your marriage. Go to counseling. Get accountable relationships. Go on a marriage retreat. Pray and fast, but by all means, do not give up. The unwavering duty of marriage leads us to the unspeakable delight of marriage. And that takes us to our third reason, that we should persevere in marriage, because marriage is a gratifying delight. In Hebrews 12, the pastor encourages us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And here's what he says in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That means that as Jesus carried that cross up the hill, as he stretched out his arms and allowed himself to be nailed to the tree, what he had in mind was joy. As he died for his bride, the church, he was thinking of joy. The goal for marriage isn't avoiding divorce. The goal of marriage is to portray in our relationship the very grace of God by the grace of God and depict the gospel with joy. Remember what God has said about the purpose and portrait of marriage. Recall that this relationship is founded upon joy to be fully known and fully loved, just like the gospel. No fear or shame in our nakedness, literal or figurative. One person in the world with whom you may have the benefit of a constant positive presumption in your words and actions, full intimacy, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Do you realize that God does this for our gladness as well as his glory? Do you know that God didn't need marriage for procreation? He didn't need the marriage bed to populate the earth. He gave that to us as a gift. Think about that as an evidence that God designed marriage to be a deeply gratifying delight. Now, because sex is, is so widely accessed outside of marriage, we lose sight of what a gift God has given us in marriage itself. Imagine, though, for a moment, if sex was physiologically impossible until the marriage certificate had been signed, if, if it could not actually be experienced outside of the marriage bed, then we would be more mindful of what a delight God has designed marriage to be. We would look and say, 
this, this thing that is inextricable from marriage, this is what marriage is like? That is amazing. That is a gift. It is a delight. If you're married this morning, that person sitting next to you, the person whose faults and foibles you are well aware of, or if you're newly married, soon will be, that's not just a partner. That is God's provision in your life. That's a person bearing the divine mark of the triune God, a person whom God will use to sanctify you, and a person who will be sanctified by you. That's the person with whom you have a chance to platform God's luxuriant love, his compassion, kindness, forgiveness, strength, commitment, beauty, ecstasy, faithfulness, perseverance, to put it on display for an entire world full of people who in their hearts are yearning for that kind of love and who deeply desire to worship that kind of God, whether or not they realize it. The person next to you is not merely your partner. They are your provision. So here are some questions for us to ask ourselves this morning. Are you pursuing joy in your marriage by sacrificially pursuing your spouse's joy? Are you laying your life down? Ephesians 5.25 counsels us on that. Does the way that you speak about your spouse when they're not in the room point people to the glory of God? Ephesians 5.22 reminds us how we ought to treat each other in that way. Does the way that you treat your spouse when they've done something to disappoint you demonstrate the grace of God that has forgiven you of everything. We're reminded throughout the scriptures how we as those who are forgiven ought to forgive. Do the wanderings of your private thoughts and the secret hopes of your heart reflect the utter faithfulness of Christ to his people? Ephesians 5.23 tells us how singularly Christ maintains faithfulness to his church. God has designed marriage for delight. Don't settle for using an iPad as a coaster this morning. In 2006, there were two college students in Kansas, Ian and Larissa. They had been dating about a year. They were headed quickly towards graduation and quickly towards marriage. And one morning, Ian was on the way to work and he suffered a severe brain injury, irreversible, and his family realized that he would never be able to work independently. He would never be able to care for himself. So most of their friends and family naturally assumed the courtship would end. But Larissa understood the purpose of marriage and she understood what it meant to persevere in marriage. And so she actually agreed to marry Ian, to become his wife and caretaker until death should separate them. Now I'm going to show you a brief video from their wedding. But as you watch it, here's what I want you to realize. I took this video from the website of a publication called the Daily Mail. If you're not familiar with the Daily Mail, it is an entirely secular British publication and it reaches about a million and a half people every day. I said that your marriage may be the greatest apologetic of your entire life, may be the greatest evangelistic opportunity you have. And I think as you watch Ian and Larissa, you'll understand how this is true for them. Take a look at this. Marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It is mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. He says, knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days, 
or maybe covered with clouds. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. Friends, whatever struggles you may be facing in your marriage, whatever unmet aspirations you may be grieving, whatever desert you may be walking through, God has a great design for your marriage, that it would be a glorious demonstration of the gospel and a gratifying delight in your life. So persevere. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and the joy that he makes available to you. I know that some of you in here may have been in marriages that didn't last. And I know there may be some people here this morning who even today are fighting what seems like a losing battle in a marriage where you are trying to persevere and maybe your spouse refuses to pursue reconciliation with you. No matter what your story is, what's true of all of us today, everyone in here, whether you've been married to the same person for 50 years or whether, like the woman at the well who Jesus encountered, you've been married to five different people, what's true of all of us today? We are all in need of God's grace. We can't take a single breath without God enabling us to do so, much less sustain a marriage all of this ultimately is intended to point us toward a perfectly faithful God who, no matter how unfaithful we are, will never forsake us. He will persevere with us until the end. So whatever your situation in life today, if you've trusted Christ, then you can be confident that he'll carry you safely to the end. He proved his immeasurable love for you by going to the cross. If you're here today and you've not ever trusted in Jesus, make this the day. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. We are all in need of the persevering love of God today. So if you would, let's end our time by praying and we will thank God for that love and we'll ask for his help in reflecting it in our marriages. God, we are so deeply grateful this morning for all your love for us, that though we are unfaithful, undisciplined, selfish, forgetful, that you've loved us and you have persevered in that love and you've pursued us even to the cross. And Jesus, as you carried that cross on your back and as you were affixed to it, that you had in mind the joy set before you of being united with your bride, your church, we who have been called by your grace. God, thank you for what you've done. Father, this morning, would you be gracious to us to give us a, a better vision for marriage? Give us the strength to persevere in marriage. Make us a people who see marriage, our own and those around us, and we're reminded of the truer and better marriage of Jesus and his people, that we would be reminded of the gospel. And God, would you help us to reflect the very gospel, the very truth that you have loved us and pursued us despite our sin, and because of Jesus' sacrifice, you have forgiven us. Would you make that manifest in our marriages? We pray for it in Jesus' name, amen.